If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality or discrimination, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Oh, we're back at that law of liberty. Law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that. Let's say that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mm, That's good stuff. Lord, thank you for your word. And as we undertake this study, as even the early church struggled with prejudice, Lord, we all do, whether we admit it or not. And so, Lord, the freest place on the face of the earth should be in the church. The place where all would come, regardless of their socioeconomic position or the color of their skin or whatever defines them on this earth, they would come and realize that The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all sinners and we're all we're all beggars, but we found the source of bread and we're just telling other beggars where the food is. And Lord, that's that's how we find ourselves. Sinners saved by grace. That's what defines us. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And so as Christians carrying that noble name, there's to be no discrimination in the body of Christ. And so, Lord, through your word, as James the Just declares it, especially as he was speaking to a church that was just inundated with prejudice, Lord, I I pray that you'd set us free. I pray that you'd minister to us. I pray that you would challenge us and strengthen us and bless us, and that, Lord, revival would come as our hearts would yield. And so, Lord, we invite you now. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a seat. My mom was uh, from Texas. She was from Texas. And uh, my, my maternal uh, grandfather was German. And, um, and uh, let's see, let me see if I have this right. No, my maternal great-grandfather was German. My maternal grandmother was, was German as well. And, um, and then my... My maternal grandfather, um, he, his name was McKee. He was from McKeesport, Pennsylvania. And um, I didn't know much about him, Daniel Frank McKee. Um, my father was McCoy. My mother's maiden name was McKee. Uh, so I'm Scotch-Irish and don't forget about it now that I'm a lad. But as McKee, McCoy, um, my mother was a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution uh, traces uh, she can trace her lineage back all the way to uh, revolutionary uh, relatives that were part of the the revolution here in the United States of America, daughters of the American Revolution. Uh, she was a, a a proud member of the daughters of the American Revolution, and uh, traced it all the way back through McKeesport, Pennsylvania, and Daniel Frank McKee. Uh, as I said, I didn't know a lot about him. Uh, he left my mother when. Uh, my mother was very young. My mother spoke very little of him. And as a matter of fact, when Michelle and I told my mom that we were going to name our firstborn son Daniel, my mom said, you will not use that name in this house. And she hung up the phone, and I called her back. I said, Mom, God told us we're supposed to name him Daniel. And she went uh, and, and said, I'm only going to tell you this once. She said, do you know your grandfather's name? I said, no. She said, it was Daniel Frank McKee. He was an awful man. That name will never be used in this home. And that's all I have to say about that. Well, God told us the name of Daniel. We did, and she's—I remember when she was holding him and saying his name, and it was a healing process for her. I don't know what Daniel Frank McKee did, but it, it deeply affected my mother. My mother was um, an interesting woman. As a daughter of the American Revolution, she uh, really believed in her bloodline and her lineage. Uh, she was proud to be a daughter of the American Revolution. She was a, a Republican uh, her whole life, a very strong activist, part of the Republican Women's Association. She was president of the Republican Women in Coronado. And some of you are going, oh, I, know, I can't stand this pastor. I knew that there was an issue with him. Relax, that's my mom, not me. And, um, and, and she was a delightful woman. My father was a veteran. 
um, in, in Vietnam, three tours of Vietnam, highly decorated, Bronze Star, Legion of Merit, amazing guy. He's still living. My mom's passed away. When I grew up in Coronado, um, my father was not a prejudiced man in any way, shape, or form. My mother had a little bend to her. Um, I remember one time we would have mixed nuts at Christmas time, a jar of uh, planters mixed nuts, and uh, the big giant nuts that would be in there, they were Brazil nuts. Um, I, I love those, and my mom would call them nigger toes. I said, What's that? What, what, mom? Oh, these are nigger toes. Now, I didn't know what that term meant. I was young. I'd hear that term again later in life when I was at Tulane University. I was on a swimming scholarship, and it was my very first time I arrived at the campus. It was a hot August day in New Orleans, Louisiana. I walk into my dorm room, and as I come in, I can see that my roommate's already arrived. I see his King James Bible opened on his bed, and I thought, wow, this is so cool. My roommate's a Christian. I saw his labeled on his Bible, Robert... Uh, um, Allison, Robert Allison. I thought, this is cool. And he was a swimmer. I, I knew he was a breaststroker because I could see it on the, the listings of the freshman incoming class. I was a freestyler. I thought, well, we're going we're gonna to get along well. My brother was a breaststroker. And, and uh, so um, all of a sudden he wanders into the, into the dorm room, real fine young man, well, well you know, kept, a clean haircut. He had a little bit of an accent because he was from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And uh, he said, let's go and, and get a bite to eat at the cafeteria. I said, great. So we went to the cafeteria. I didn't know where it was, getting to know the campus. And uh, we get into the mess hall, and the athletes were to eat upstairs. And there was a line going up to the top portion where the athletes would eat. And the line was backed up because we, we were given a meal card and had to be punched. And, and the line wasn't moving. It was a sweltering hot uh, you know, Louisiana day in August. And uh, there was no air conditioning in this one location. The sun's beating down on us, and we're waiting to get into the dining hall, and a line, real long line, and, I, and it wasn't moving, and I just simply said, gosh, I wonder what's keeping the line. And Robert Allison looks at me and goes, it's probably some dumb nigger. I hadn't heard that term since I was eating nuts. <laughs> I went, and there was an enormous black man who turned, he was on the football team, and he looks down, and Robert Allison was a tiny little guy, five foot six, and he said, what'd you say? Robert Allison looked him right in the eye. He said, I, I said, probably some dumb nigger. I go, fellas, I'm from California. I don't know what's going on here, but this is just not making sense to me. And they're about to throw down. Another fellow came, you know, resolved it, no talking. And, and here we would finished eating, went into the room, and he went back to his Bible and began to read and pray and talk about the Lord and praise God this, praise God that. Prejudice, as you can imagine. I was stunned by that. I never experienced that kind of prejudice. When I had left Tulane and I went to Fresno State, um, and I graduated from Fresno State and I got involved with ministry, I met a man there when I was going to seminary. His name was Robert Perkins, and he was from Mendenhall, Mississippi, a black man. And he was um, a visiting professor at the Mennonite Brethren Biblical Seminary. And he had started in Harumbee, which is in Pasadena, uh, a ministry and also the same in Mendenhall, Mississippi. And I heard his story and sat through his class, and he had a huge impact on me as well as HSPs because at the time, Fresno was going through um, uh, an enormous difficulty. Uh, many of you have heard the story, but they had the second highest murder rate, second only to Los Angeles, second highest uh, car theft rate, second only to Newark, New Jersey. There was a murder every night on the television. The city was in a free fall. If you called 911, it would take over 45 minutes for an officer to respond uh, we were under siege, gangs, you know, because when Vietnam fell, all of the Vietnamese and the Cambodians and the Laotians, they all, the Mongs, they all came to Fresno because they thought it was a agrarian area and they just relocated them there and gangs were everywhere and, and it was awful. And uh, the warfare and what was taking place and the city was in great danger. And uh, we'd had a car rob from from our driveway, there was a woman who was held up right by our fence in our backyard. I've shared the story that my wife and I were watching a raid on a crack house um, on the news, and we just opened up the front windows and watched it live. It was across the street. <laughs> we could hear the helicopters, everything. And this was what was going on in Fresno. It was in a, it was in a mess. And uh, I remember H. Spees, who is the director of Serve Fresno, um, he put together the, the Serve Fresno Coalition and all the pastors gathered together up in the hills above Fresno. We began to pray. And it was a three-day uh, retreat where we all just began to cry out to the Lord for the city. 
We said, God, what are we going to do? Pete Nihas, who's the superintendent of schools, uh, Ed Noble, who is the, uh, the uh, chief of police, uh, Ed McGarrian, who is the sheriff, the uh, Fresno sheriff, uh, Mayor Patterson, the mayor of Fresno, they all joined us. They were all believers. We all just sought the Lord. I was young at the time. I was impressionable. I was listening to H. H had been heavily influenced by Robert Perkins. And H had ha- actually um, been in Mendenhall, Mississippi when he was a young man during the civil rights era and worked with John Perkins. And um, the story with John was when he was in Mendenhall, Mississippi, um, his brother Clyde was shot by um, uh, a, a white sheriff um, on a traffic violation and just shot him. And Clyde died in, in John's arms as they drove the 50 miles to find a hospital would care for a black man. And uh, you can think that John would be embittered. He finally just went into the military, served in Korea, and when he got out, he moved to California where racism wasn't as prevalent as it is in the South and uh, had freedom to pursue uh, his employment, succeeded, bought a 10-bedroom house, um, was very affluent, was doing well, and then came to Christ. And he was so moved by his transformation of having come to Christ that he realized that God was calling him as the Apostle Paul said, I would want that I would go to hell, that my people would come to Christ, as he had read about the Jews. And he had this burden for the blacks in, in Mississippi, and he felt God calling him back to Mississippi. So he moved back to Mississippi during the Civil Rights era and began to minister in Mendenhall, Mississippi. And, and um, they would say, you know, there'd be signs in Mendenhall, tonight, revival meeting, no blacks allowed. Uh, the churches were segregated. And he... He met with uh, the First Baptist Church of Mendenhall, Mississippi, the pastor, and he finally just got up enough courage to go in and talk to him and just said, you know, we have got to have reconciliation and resolve this because the most segregated place in America is a church. And according to James chapter 2, this has to be resolved. There's no partiality, no discrimination. And the pastor was sympathetic, listened to him, tested his theology to see if he believed in in, uh, you know, evangelical Christ- Christianity and asked about the deity of Christ and the, uh, the, um, the, 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 the Scripture is, is uh, you know, without error. And he went through all of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. And when he found that John Perkins was solid theologically, he began to listen to his concerns, was moved by that, and made a point to address his congregation on two Sundays about ra- racial reconciliation. Faced such pushback and, and so ostracized by his congregation, that uh, three months later, the pastor committed suicide. And then uh, John Perkins shared of another pastor who was the pastor of the Presbyterian Church in town, went and shared with him and talked to him. And he actually, that pastor set aside $3,000 back then, which is quite a bit of money, to minister to the folks on the other side of the tracks and to, to try to build race, racial reconciliation to do reading centers and the like. Not, not handouts, but hands up. Not, not a government program, but one that was facilitated by the heart of the church to truly seek uh, this, this mending of, of, the, of the division in the body of Christ. And he faced such pushback from his congregation that 11 months after their initial meeting, that man also committed suicide. And, and this, was, this was heavy stuff. I remember uh, there was a MASH episode, um, and this is the first time I, I vaguely recall this, um, and it was a story about a man named Dr. Alexander Drew. And, uh, and, and Alexander Drew uh, was one of the folks that was responsible for creating plasma. He was a doctor, and he had created this idea of plasma that would be brought on the battlefield, and it began in World War II, also used in Korea. 98% of those that received plasma lived. Uh, it was an absolutely transformative move on the battlefield to have plasma provided. He became the director of the National Blood Bank Program, and he devoted himself to teaching doctors at Howard University Medical School. But as the story was told in, in MASH, um, that, that uh, Dr. Drew was a black man, and he was in a car accident going on his way to a convention um, in April 1st, 1950, and uh, when in the car accident, he needed a plasma um, transfusion and the hospital wouldn't admit, admit him because he was black and, and traveling to the following hospital, he died. And here the man who invented plasma wouldn't receive it and he died. And all those things had an impact on me. But it came to find out as I was putting this message together, um, this illustration, and I was telling my wife how excited I was I was going to build the sermon around this illustration of Dr. Alexander Drew only to find out that that's an urban legend. 
the, the, the two of the doctors that were in the accident who survived it unscathed said that uh, Dr. Drew was treated wonderfully in North Carolina, um, at, in Burlington, North Carolina, and, and they loved him. He was a very godly man, and they cared for him, and it wasn't a plasma issue. He just died because, and they went through the whole medical reason for why he died. But I, I looked at this, and I think, we are so convoluted and screwed up in America that we'll use anything we can to try to divide the populace. We'll try to further our political agenda by bending the truth just a little bit to serve our own purposes. And, and in so doing, we, we find that, that we become jaded and, and we try to implement um, uh, politically that which doesn't happen morally in the body of Christ. And what the church is unable to do or unwilling to do, uh, there's an attempt by the world to try to implement it and they'll do whatever they need to do even if they take a national show like MASH and perpetrate a lie that becomes an urban legend to try to formulate a young mind like my own for generations to come. And where is the truth in all of it? But Jesus says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, I will say this. I, I was exposed to prejudice growing up. I, 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 I knew racial jokes. Uh, we had all kinds of jokes. Um, and and I, I could go through a litany of them. I still remember to this day. And we laughed and we laughed. And some of you who may be a different color skin than myself would, would place judgment on me. But in, in regards to me, you have the same background. Don't deny it. We all tend to congregate with that which we find familiar, and then that's the other person. I served in a church for four and a half years, an Armenian church, where Michelle and I had a distinct title. We were called Odars. Odars. In Armenian, that means Others. That's a real warm, inviting term when you're in a church. You're other. You're other. And yeah, here I was. I was other. I was not Armenian. I was an Odar. And, and, uh, and we tend to define ourselves and, and we look at them as the enemy because this is how they treated us and this is how we're going to treat them or this, you know, whatever it is, we build a prejudice. And it's irrelevant who you are this morning. It's irrelevant what your background is. It's irrelevant what your prejudice is. God's word this morning, as we read it, God's word this morning says, that's over. You're a new creature in Christ. It's over. It ends today. It's over. You have to examine yourself in the light of Scripture and look at this idea of discrimination. You have to look at your life and say, God, how do you want to change me? I even see in the body of Christ as as there's a favoritism today towards the wealthy. We've even redefined theology to appeal to the wealth. We, we, try to, we, we, we try to build a theology that if you give, you're going to get and you're going to be rich and you know Jesus wore designer clothes and on and on and on. But the reality is when you look at this, this is a tough scripture for that theology because it declares this idea of, of the wealth that, that they're the poor in the body of Christ. We see in many areas of Scripture that for a rich man to get to heaven is like a camel passing through the eye of a needle. The idea with that is is wealth tends to hinder our faith. And we show partiality to the rich. We show partiality to the rich. You know, I was thinking one of the ways to do this sermon is I would, I would, I would set you up. I would have some actor who would be really good and, and somebody you didn't know, and I'd bring him into the church dressed like a homeless person that smelled like urine and their clothes were just disgusting. And I'd have him come in and, I, and I'd, I'd want to see if anyone greeted him or sat next to him. I want to get somebody that would, would embody every fear you have and, and just have him come into the room and sit down and to see how you interact with him, what you do. I know what I'd do. And I, and I would be in on it, so I would obviously think myself, you know, s- superior because, well, I didn't fall for that. Well, I set you up. I imagine if I was sitting in your seat, I'd, I'd be a sucker too. We have fears, but the Lord says he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. You see, it was Peter who said in Acts chapter 10, he opened his mouth and he said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. In Genesis, it says we, have, we were created in His image. We were created in His image. 
let us create man in our own image. And when it says us, the term in the Hebrew is Elohim. It's a very interesting term because it speaks of the Trinity in the Old Testament, but it's when you define the word Elohim, it's singular plurality or unified diversity. And if we've been created in the image of God, just stop for a minute. If we've been created in the image of God, just look around the room. That is a funky image. Look around. Look at all the diversity of that image that God speaks of. And, and, and with this idea that God shows no partiality, if we've been created in the image of God, it has no bearing on the color of our skin or the wealth in our pocket or the absence thereof. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is, God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality. He shows no partiality. It was the Apostle Paul who wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from two. We're all new creatures in Christ. And James is going to go on to say, James is going to go on to say in the following verses, he's going to say, faith without works is dead. You can tell me you're a believer all you want, <clears throat> but if you're still prejudiced and you're still operating in that context, that, that, that is a faith absent of works. You see, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it was Samuel himself who, when the Lord said, you know, I want to appoint a king, and, and, and Samuel was so enamored with Saul because he was, he was head and shoulders taller than anyone in all of Israel. He was stunningly handsome. And Samuel said, this is, this is a, a perfect example of what a king is to look like. And, and even, you know, examining the sons of Jesse, he went all the way down the line, and the last he would expect to be the king was, was the one that Jesse thought was the least in his estimation, David. Samuel went right for the tallest, most handsome. And that's what we do for political leaders, right? We, we want to get somebody who's articulate, somebody who's handsome, somebody who just moves us, somebody, you know, we just want to project all of our hopes and dreams on them. But it was the Lord who said to Samuel in a rebuke, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. You see, David was a man after God's own heart, and that's why the Lord loved him. And, and we find in Matthew, the Lord says, in relation to wealth, and this is in the passage where we see uh, uh, James declaring, for if there should come into your assembly, verse 2, a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit, in, you, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there and sit at my footstool. If, if wealth and prosperity were a sign of maturity, then why is God saying that the poor are rich in faith? That's a struggle. Why is God saying the poor are rich in faith, and yet He's saying it's the rich man who has the greatest struggle? I mean, if this idea of faith transmitting itself into prosperity, the Scripture doesn't declare that. God is saying that the poor are rich in faith. Why are they rich in faith? Because they have need of trusting God. There's nothing wrong with being in a place where you need the Lord. We despise God when we think we don't have enough. Well, that's just as bad as being rich and, and rejecting Him like you don't need Him. Either way, you complain against a God who knows exactly what He's doing and knows how to bless you and knows what you need. There were seasons in my life where I didn't have two nickels to rub together and God knew that's exactly what I needed. And I was, I was doing just as well then and just as right with God then as I am now. As a matter of fact, probably those times where I was really struggling, living in a windowless apartment and eating, you know, second, you know, donation food, we were so close to the Lord. It's times where the wealth comes in that you tend to find yourself distancing from God and you just don't give him that, that time of day. You're too busy with all your possessions to spend time in his presence. And the Lord would say, listen, my beloved brethren, verse 5, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? I've never been sued by a poor man. I've never been sued until this year, but I'm telling you. 
And so you look at these things, and, and, and it was Jesus who said in Matthew 19, he says, again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I've heard endless commentaries on, oh, well, that means that there was a certain gate called the, the needle, eye of the needle gate, and, and they had to remove the possessions and get down on their knees in humility and then get their possessions through one at a time. No, it doesn't <laughs> exist, and that's a lie. It just, they made it up. It's exactly what it says it is. You can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. You just can't do it unless it's like, you know, Vitamix and then you drip it through, you know. I don't know. It's just, it doesn't work that way. God meant exactly what he said. Jesus, what he said he meant. It's very difficult for a rich man to get to heaven. It really is. We're so possessed by our possessions. It dictates how we live, what, we move, what we're moved by. 1 Corinthians one twenty six, it says, Paul writes, he says, For you see your calling, brethren. You see your calling, brethren. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. I mean, it, it, that's just how the Lord works. He takes the foolish things of the world to despise the wisdom of the wise. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. We've studied that. And the Lord takes these things and He humbles us. And many of you have no idea of some of the people that are going to be first in line in heaven and are going to have the largest mansions because they're silent in what they do. Amazing. I know a rich man who's in heaven right now. I know a rich man who's in heaven right now. He was worth more money than probably anyone in this room. Some of you are going, hey, you don't know what I make. Well, obviously you're not giving it or I would know. <laughs> All right, so where were we? <laughs> Just a little fun there with you. Uh, this man's name was Harold Mansellian. He owned Farmer's Lumber, Farmer's Finance in Fresno, California. He left Fresno twice in his life, one for army training in Las Vegas and once to return for a reunion because he was at the end of the war. He never had to serve. They, he was discharged and then went back for a reunion. The only two times he left Fresno. The man was worth millions. He drove an old beat-up pickup truck, w- rode a bicycle around his lumber yard, wore old clothes, and his offices were these dilapidated sun oil building offices that were leaning. And he had a picture of Eisenhower on the wall. I think it had never been moved. But next to the picture of Eisenhower, he had all these pictures of, of children that he had sponsored in Lebanon. And each of those was $100 a month. He had he just, over, uh, probably 100 of them on his wall. He was the one who silently paid for my seminary that I found out by a clerical error when I saw on a stack of papers by his secretary of over 40 years, Rose, and I saw my name there, and I realized I wasn't the only one he was paying to send to seminary. There was a, a whole bunch of us. He was, he was a, the most silent servant you can imagine. He used to say things like, I live more simply than others may simply live. He would ride through the yumber, lumber yard. He'd pick up a nail that'd be kind of bent, and he'd straighten that thing out and put it back in the bin. And I mean, every T was crossed, and every I was dotted, and that man... You know, he had every, there was an in for every out and an out for every in, and his checkbook was balanced. But whatever would be the profit from that would go into the checkbook of benevolence. And that man gave and gave and gave. I ran into one missionary uh, going through the lumber yard, and, and Harold was excited for me to meet him. He says he's a missionary in Brazil. He works in the deep, in the rainforest there. I said, uh, I, I, how do you fund? He goes, I don't need to go to churches. I don't panhandle. I don't ask. He says, everything, I, I, the whole ministry is covered by what happens here. I said, what do you mean? He says, Harold doesn't give you anything. And he says, when I come here, Harold, Harold will loan me $100,000, and he'll sell me lumber discounted, and he'll give me a line of credit, and I'll build a spec house. In the four months I'm here, and I sell the spec house, and with the money I make on that, I go back in the mission field. I've done six of them, six of them. And that's how he would supply. And that was the only guy that did that. Harold was a man who understood how to operate ministries, and he was faithful, faithful, faithful. He was worth more than anyone in this room, I, I, I truly believe. And, and, and people say, well, how much did he leave? Very little. He'd already given it all away. You know, for most of you, when you say, what did he leave? Everything. Harold didn't leave anything. He sent it on ahead. He sent it on ahead. That man was rich, very rich. You see, Timothy says in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, 
for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We just love money. We love money, and it affects us. Jesus was talking with a young man in Matthew 22, and the young man said to him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And it's interesting that James would quote this, You shall love your neighbors yourself in verse 8. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You do well. But if you show prejudice or partiality, you commit sin. And then he goes on to say, if you break one law, you've broken them all. You're a transgressor of the law. And the wages of sin is death. You break one law, you die. That's the penalty for sin, for transgression. And some of you go, well, I'm not a murderer. Well, are you an adulterer? I'm not an adulterer. Have you ever lusted for anyone? Well, yeah, I have. Then you're an adulterer. Well, where do you get that? Jesus said it. Oh, man. Well, I'm not a murderer. Jesus said if you say to your brother, you fool or you idiot, you're in danger of the fires of hell and you're a murderer. You've heard the sixth commandment, thou shalt not, shalt, that shall not murder. But I say to you, if you say to your brother, raka or fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Why, well, I've done that. Then you're a murderer. You don't need a gun to kill somebody. Your words will do just fine. We've covered that, right? You look at somebody and go, you're stupid. You're ugly. Your mom and dad, wish, we wish you'd never been born. I don't need a gun to kill that child. I don't need a gun to kill that child. I shared with you the story about the young man in, when I first moved to Coronado. And I was in the second grade. And I was wearing clothes from the East Coast. We transferred, and they were all laughing at me. And I, I, I knew how humor, because I was a Navy family. Every two years you moved. And I picked the easiest target in the room, a kid with bright red hair, thick glasses, and a runny nose, and food all over his chest. And I started making fun of him. The kids laughed. Got all of it off of me. And I continued to pick on that kid, third, fourth, fifth grade, sixth grade, flinch like I was going to hit him and he'd cower. Use the term faggot. All the kids laughed. By the time I got to high school, I was already on the varsity team, ended up becoming captain and all that. He was so out of my rearview mirror. He was gone. He was sitting by himself in the lunchroom, ostracized along with the rest of the kids that, that nobody wanted anything to do with. When I became a Christian, I wanted to reconcile. I sought him out and only to find out that he committed suicide, jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. I didn't need a gun to kill him. And you may sit and go, why was that one that was picked on? And, 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 and well, you look, hey, you can stand in judgment of me. I'm not proud of it. I hate to revisit it. But the reality is, do you have a prejudice towards me now? Everybody's got a sin. Everybody's got an issue. I want God to correct it. I want Him to change me. I want His Word to purify me. And that's why the man came to Jesus in Matthew 22 and said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? What do I do? I want to get right with you, God. Jesus said to him, And listen, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. He just says, hey, listen, the whole Old Testament is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Old Testament. We're good to go. You good with that? You good with that? I'm good with that. You good with that? And as he says that to the man, the man went away sad, the scripture says. But the picture is this. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. When Jesus, through James, and the Holy Spirit through James says, you break one law, you're a transgressor. Well, how in the world do we fulfill the law of liberty? And again, law of liberty. We covered that. Law of liberty? Here's the law of liberty. It's not the law of the land, it's the law of the heart. It's your life before the Lord. You see, if you're moved to love God, and I think it was Augustine who said, love the Lord and do as you please. That's very freeing. I mean, let's just look at the IRS laws this year. I imagine that thing is like this. And there's one simple, Jesus says, here's the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Done deal. Society will flourish. We're good to go.
We don't do that. If our neighbor is black and we're white, mm -mm. if I'm rich and he's poor, mm -mm. if my clothes are clean and his are dirty, mm -mm. and if we reverse it, if I'm an immigrant and he's one of these folks that are, he's the man, hold me down. Mm -mm. We got it all. I don't care what side you're on, you're on a side. And there's division and there's separation and there's prejudice. And don't, don't sit in judgment of me because I'm white and I was raised with a, a mother who is, is prejudiced and was the president of the Republican women and, and she's a daughter of the American Revolution. You want to stand in judgment of me? You're guilty too. So am I. The Lord is saying it can be resolved today. It can be resolved today. Two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I've shared this before. It's amazing how we do this. We add one commandment to those two that negate the other two. That's how we are as people. We, we are, we're awful that way. We add one commandment, one commandment that, that just negates those first two that Jesus shared. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. And then we add this third commandment because it's, it's really good. It's a good commandment. You ready? Pastor. Pastor. I can't love others until I first learn how to love myself. <laughs> I need to learn how to love me. You know how poisonous that is? How awful that is? Do you realize that you are already madly in love with yourself? Oh, no, pastor. No, pastor. I am not. I don't love me. I'm ugly. I hate me. If you really hated yourself, you'd be glad you were ugly. Amen? You just say that because you want attention. You want attention. We'll do anything we can to be the center of the universe. We'll even take two commandments that sum up all of the Old Testament and we'll change it and make it about us. We're unbelievable that way. We're wretched. We'll figure out some way to make it about us. I'm in, you're out. It's all about me. I give this book when I'm counseling married couples, love and respect. I don't do it anymore. I don't give that book out anymore. It, and here's why. It's, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous what you people do. And me included. I read the book. I even get, I'm like, oh yeah. Love and respect. A man needs to be respected. A woman needs to be loved. If you respect me, I'll love you. If you love me, I'll respect you. And you read through this respect part for the men, and he's nailing it. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. The woman's over there going, oh, he knows my heart. Yes, yes, yes. A thousand times, yes. And the guy's over there going, if you did this, it would all be better. Well, excuse me. If you did some of these things, it would be better. What do we do with the book? We read it in prejudice. It's all about me. This is what you need to do for me. This is what you need to do for me. 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 I. I am dead. I have been crucified with Christ. There's no longer... 
I who live. It's Christ who lives in me to will and to do of his good pleasure. The partiality is ridiculous. What can you do for me? A poor man can't do squat for me, but a rich man can. Please, sit here. Why do you think I have Ralph in the front? (laughs) Now, the idea is you suck up to the rich because they can do something for you. A poor man has needs. Well, I have needs. Why should I be worried about yours? I have needs. The last thing we want is the needy. Church would, Christianity ministry would be great if it wasn't for all the needs. Just keep bringing the money in. Tithe. Then I'll get the jet fly places. You all wallow in it. I don't want to soil my hands with the rabble. Listen, that's what it's about. The, the poor, spend some time with them. They get it. They're rich in faith. They'll show you things you don't know about. I got to tell you, I've been in a home in Uganda. You think you've seen poverty? You have no idea. I'm watching them rejoice on a dirt floor. Thanking God for the first meat that they've, haven't had, they've had all month. And the joy in that house is so abundant, so thick you can cut it with a knife. And the peace upon that home. And here we are in affluence. And we're discontented and miserable and depressed. It does you a world of good to spend time in that realm. Changes everything around. We used to take kids down to Mexico when I was a youth pastor. Not because the kids were going down to help anybody. Our kids needed the help. We were taking them down to be ministered to. And they're going down, well, we're going to go down and help the poor Mexicans down in Mexico. And we're going to show them, you know, wealth Americans. And we're going to come down there. And then, you know, wow, these kids are happier than I am. They don't even have an iPhone. I can't get a signal here. (laughs) We just run for money. We blaspheme the noble name by which we've been called. He's the Prince of Peace. He's a God who shows no partiality. He's patient, long-suffering, wanting that none would perish, but that all would be saved. And then finally... He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you do well. But he says, there's partiality, it's the same as murder, it's the same as adultery. And he says, now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law, so to speak. And he says, so as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And then finally it says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I would, I would say this this morning as we come to a, a close. I would say this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And, and what do we learn about this idea of a God who doesn't discriminate? We've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of work to do. We discriminate by music. We discriminate by color. We discriminate by wealth. We discriminate... Endless... And the Lord says, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How do we do that? Love others the way you love yourself. Step into their world, spend some time with them. Yeah, but they're, they're, they're needy. So are you. You were dangling over the fires of hell when God saved you. We, we, we deserve judgment. He gave us mercy. I would say to you this morning, what do you want from God? Mercy or judgment? There's good. There's one person who excited about what he needs. What do you need from God? Do you need mercy or do you need judgment? 
Oh, that sounds good, doesn't it? Mercy. Mercy. Okay. In regards to your enemy, what do you want from God? Do you want them to receive mercy or do you want them to receive judgment? Because the scripture says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. <laughs> and to the level you judge, you will be judged. We love to be victims. We love it. We just love being victims. We love to, we love to use that victimization so that we are the center of the universe. Pastor, I can't believe you said that. I've done it. We'll do anything we can to make it all about us. Even unforgiveness of those who've hurt us so that we can remain the victim and we can have pity from the world around us. And you know what? The world will coddle you. And they'll give you a sticker to put in your window or whatever. They'll, they'll give you an income. What, what's your ailment? What can I give you to make it better? And the Lord says, you're not a victim, you're a conqueror. You're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We've all been hurt. And we're all sinners and we've hurt. Now put it aside. And let's honor the name by which we've been called. There's no discrimination, no partiality, rich or poor. We're one in Christ. We're new creatures in Christ. This is a declaration. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's start applying mercy and watch God transform our lives. See, that's the joy of this. We can be set free today. And God's been doing it in my life and he can do it in yours. And it's so freeing. It's so freeing. And God has come to set us free. I close with this last thought. And it was said by Martin Luther King. He said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Whatever you've used to discriminate, let it go. Let's start living the character of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for your faithfulness to your word. And thank you, Lord, for setting us free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the law of liberty. And Lord, I, I rejoice that you said for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But then you say mercy triumphs over judgment. So Lord, we can't leave this place until we apply that truth that mercy triumphs over judgment. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The judgment leveled upon you this day as a sinner is eternal damnation separated from God for all eternity. That's it. That's judgment. But God who is abounding in mercy says to you this day, come to me, those who are burdened with this judgment and are heavy laden. I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to deliver you from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I'm going to show you mercy. And that mercy is found in my son. If you believe in your heart, you confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you're forgiven, you're saved. And mercy now triumphs over judgment. You want to be set free? God is here to give you mercy. God is here to give you mercy. You've lived your whole life as a victim or you've lived your whole life in prejudice, even towards Christians. And you're sitting in this room right now and you're thinking, this makes sense. What do I need to do? Jesus said, you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day of mercy. 
as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, Jesus said, if you profess me before man, I'll profess you before my Father in heaven. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to mercy and be saved. But it's an act that you have to do. You have to respond. And it's real simple. He died on the cross for you. And all he's going to ask of you this day is to raise your hand to receive him. And so if you want to receive mercy and you want to receive this Savior who's going to cast your sins as far as the east is from the west and make you a new creature in Christ, take away all your prejudice, all your pride. You're no longer a victim. You're a conqueror in Christ Jesus. If you want to receive that right now, would you raise your hand? God bless you. 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 Anyone else? You don't have to be ashamed of it. God bless you both. Praise you, God. Lord, thank you for those who've raised their hand to respond to you. You will call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. The Bible says that when one person comes to Christ, the angels in heaven rejoice. As do we, Lord. We have witnessed the miracle of salvation. You are the God who saves. And Lord, we thank you this day for your word and what you've done in the lives of your people. And we praise you. God bless those folks who've given their heart to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's clap for those folks who give their heart to the Lord. I went long. I'm going to let you go, but I want to do this real quick. For those of you who raise your hand, I saw you. You know who you are, all right? I want to be your pastor. I want to get you started on the Word. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the Word of God. This is a gift for you. You come up to me or any one of the guys in the back there, and you ask them, they're going to give you this, and they're going to pray with you. Real simple. Don't leave here without getting this. I want you to be blessed and grow in the Lord. Would you stand with me?